Hello, I'm Kyle Willoughby. Joining me is Claire White. Hello. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We're here to discuss new nerd creations and some old nerd creations as per our new format and their history and their roots and where the characters and the stories come from. And today, in conjunction with our last episode, which was about Frankenstein, uh, we are talking about Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, for those who haven't heard, is a book written by Michael Crichton about dinosaurs that have been genetically engineered for a theme park off the coast of Costa Rica. When visitors are brought to the island, the creators of the park find that it's not as easy to control what they've made. Surprise, surprise. Yes. In 1993, Spielberg released a movie adaptation of the novel. Since then, four more movies have been made, including a franchise reboot in 2015. Kyle is going to talk about... I actually have no idea. Yeah, it's kind of a, a surprise. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about Jurassic Park and relate it back to Frankenstein and then talk a little bit about genetics, actually. Oh, wow. Um, I'm very excited yeah, for that. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about making the book and the first movie. Ooh. So, Kyle... Take it away. Uh, I will take it away. So as Claire just mentioned, Jurassic Park is a movie and a book and a movie and a movie and a movie and a movie and will soon probably be another movie. Oh, it's definitely going to be another movie. <laughs> if sales are anything to go off of, yeah, because they keep making money on these. Even as the quality goes up and down, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the series has changed a lot since its first appearance in our media, which was in the year of 1990 with Michael Crichton's book. Um, now, we are talking about Jurassic Park as a sort of analog for themes explored in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and how they change and adapt for the modern era. So to put it simply, even as culture changes and evolves, sci-fi themes find a way. <laughs> <laughs> and I am, of course, paraphrasing Ian Malcolm, a.k.a. Jeff Goldblum from the movie, one of the greatest characters ever. <laughs> So I think everybody's familiar with the first Steven Spielberg movie, and a lot of people are also probably familiar with the new Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard, Jurassic World movies. If box office numbers mean anything. Yes. But I don't think as many people are that well-versed with the book and where the original themes of the book show their faces in the films. Crichton's book Jurassic Park was released in 1990 to positive reviews, um, and Crichton was no stranger to writing successful books or successful movies and television. He'd been writing in it for years. Crichton's work was often sci-fi or speculative in nature and normally had a solid background in science, and Jurassic Park was definitely no different. The book leans heavily into the science of genetics, chaos theory, and mathematics, all while leaving room for the brutal murder of humans at the claws and teeth of different dinosaurs. <laughs> but it also leans heavily into a lot of themes that were explored in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, along with themes from the later Frankenstein film adaptations. And one of the key big themes in both of these stories is ambition. So in Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein gets so obsessed with his experimentations that he doesn't stop to think about the moral ramifications or responsibilities of creating life. Um, so this is a quote from Frankenstein. In Frankenstein, Victor says, Whence I often asked myself, did the principle of life proceed? It was a bold question and one which has ever been considered as a mystery. Yet with how many things are we upon the brink of becoming acquainted if cowardice or carelessness did not restrain our inquiries? Which is basically Frankenstein saying that fools and cowards were kind of what was holding man back from discovering new secrets, and in his case, the secrets of life specifically. 
So John Hammond in both the book and the movie shows similar disdain for anyone who advises caution to his goal of cloning and creating a very controlled dinosaur park. And he scoffs at every turn any naysaying that is uh, implies that his idea to create dinosaurs and make a, a park out of them isn't the best idea ever. Anyone who's like, ah, maybe we should think about this. He's like, poppycock. I think his line is actually balls. <laughs> He's always saying balls in, in the book in italics. <laughs> and both movie John Hammond and book John Hammond are guilty of this flippant reaction to any perceived criticisms of his vision of wild dino land. Though the way the book Hammond and movie Hammond react when the criticisms are proved valid are very different. Yes. But they still fit within a, fr a frame of Frankenstein. Book Hammond reacts a bit more like movie Victor, and movie Hammond reacts a bit more like book Victor, <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying. Yes, I do. So for those of you who didn't hear our last episode or forgot, Victor Frankenstein in Shelley's original book is less of a mad scientist and more of a kind of whiny emo boy scientist. After creating his monster, he immediately sees that what he has done is wrong, and he runs away, crying into the night. The monster then starts stalking him and killing the ones he loves. Victor then decides to try and kill the monster himself. So in the movie Jurassic Park, when the dinos escape and Hammond's family is threatened, because I don't know if, if anyone's watched the movie recently, but the kids in that film are supposed to be his grandkids— he quickly joins the side of, holy crap, we've got to get out of here any way we can, and if that means shooting my precious raptors in the face, so be it. And Hammond and Crichton's book series reacts more in the way of that mad scientist Victor Frankenstein motif that exists in our media and our culture. Yeah. He doesn't care about his grandkids at oh, all. Oh, my God. He's such a douche. Yeah, he's terrible. You know, he's seemingly okay with the destruction and havoc that his creature is is wreaking on the world. And Hammond in the book is, you know, he doesn't care that, that people are dying. He's so obsessed with what he's trying to achieve. So the character of Ian Malcolm, I think, plays a very interesting role in the book and movie as well. He is kind of the one character in, in both the book and the movie that are espousing the conclusions that Victor Frankenstein in the book comes to. And Ian Malcolm is a visiting mathematician yeah. here to observe the park before it opens to the public. Yeah. And he's played by Jeff Goldblum in the uh, original movie. Uh, except that when Victor goes around lamenting what he's done as a slight against God, Ian Malcolm laments what Hammond has done as a slight against nature. He's always saying... What you're doing is is against nature. It's against evolution. This is not how the natural world should be. So nature kind of is the stand-in for God. It becomes God. Yeah, in, yes. in the Jurassic Park book and, and first movie anyway. Now there's just this wonderful scene in the first Jurassic Park film where Hammond and the scientists are sitting around a table eating lunch, and Hammond asks the scientists what they think of the park. And to me it just kind of screams Frankenstein in a modern setting. Hammond doesn't understand the trepidations of Grant and Sadler, and they're the paleontologists and paleobotanists that were brought to the park to, to assess it and, you know, and almost kind of drum up excitement, too. Mm -hmm. Like, Hammond brings these paleontologists and a paleobotanist there to be like, look, dinosaurs, these guys are definitely going to be on my side. And Hammond then gets into an argument with Malcolm, Ian Malcolm, about whether or not Hammond and people in general possess the ability to stay in control of these creatures that they just created and know little to nothing about. And to me, that really falls in line with a lot of Shelley's book and Victor's constant lamentations over what he has done and how he has overstepped some boundary and how his creature is running amok. 
And Hammond's inability to see the inherent danger in what he has done on this island really reminds me of this particular quote from Frankenstein. Nothing contributes so much to tranquilize the mind as a steady purpose, a point on which the soul can focus its intellectual eye. Or in the words of Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, <laughs> your scientists were so caught up with the fact that they could do it that they never stopped to consider if they should do it. And I like Mary Shelley's a little bit better. It's a, yeah, it's a little, you know. A little more a, poetic. It's a little more poetic. Or romantic. I, the, thing, the difference is you you heard me say that line of Ian Malcolm's. I didn't when hear you, Jeff Goldblum. When you hear Jeff Goldblum say it, you're like, wow, man. Deep. You want to snap your fingers like you're at a beat <laughs> poetry poet. <laughs> reading or something. <laughs> So I really like Shelley's uh, way she puts this to tranquilize the mind, cause it to not see the big picture or ask the questions that need to be asked. And this tranquilizing of the mind is exactly what Crichton feared in the late 80s and early 90s in regards to the field of genetics and its lack of oversight. Crichton was really using the modern science of our time, just as Mary Shelley did, to tell a cautionary tale about overreach and not asking the right questions. And genetics as a science had really come into its own in the post-World War II world, but unlike, say, atomic science, which had entered the public consciousness around the same time, a little earlier, but around the same time, it lacked much oversight from government. And Crichton feared that genetics could start to run amok, much like his dinosaurs, and could come to infect every aspect of our lives, and he was right in a way. So we obviously don't have to fear. I was just about to ask that. Yeah. Where are the dinos? Claire, there is a velociraptor outside oh, no! this recording Listen, closet right now. If I've learned anything from Jurassic Park, <laughs> that is bad news. It's bad news. They are they are mean. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we don't have to fear clone dinos coming after us in the night. But the majority of the world does take part in fueling the billion-dollar business that is genetics. And, I mean, do you know where and what that is, Claire? Well, yeah, because I see your notes. Yeah. And I did kind of know this. Yeah, it's pretty obvious. Food? Food, yeah. The majority of food we eat in America, at least, and I'm pretty sure the rest of the world, has the stamp of being genetically modified. If you've ever heard of Monsanto, then you know that, you know, food is constantly being played with by a, a big business. Now, Monsanto's whole business is genetically changing crops so that they are resistant to Roundup, which is the spray that keeps bugs and weeds from killing them. And food crops are constantly being changed and modified at a genetic level to be bigger, resistant to weeds or bugs or blight. And it's something that Crichton was worried about, but is, you know, still going on today and that people today still are worried about. You know, there's there's lots yeah. of dirty hippies who are worried about Monsanto, you know, playing with their their food and their crops. And maybe they have a right to be because the there there is a, a lack of over oversight on this kind of genetic fooling with food. Now, farmers and horticulturalists, are, I'm going to talk a little bit about genetics now. Farmers and horticulturalists are sort of the original geneticists. Farmers and gardeners have been crossbreeding different strains of plant to hopefully bring out specific traits for a really long time. Uh, and up until the 19th century, it was often thought of as taboo. Right. You don't want to mess with what God made. Exactly. Crossbreeding has been understood at least as far back as 1720 when an English nurseryman deliberately created a hybrid carnation, which is a flower. The nurseryman spent the rest of his life feeling guilty about having trespassed oh, on God's no. exclusive territory. Poor guy. <laughs> We're just trying to make a new flower. By the mid-19th century, horticulturalists were creating crossbreed after crossbreed. And at first, they released their new creations under fake Latin names to give the illusion of having discovered the plant in nature as opposed to having manufactured it in their gardens. <laughs> 
But by the mid-19th century, so many people were doing it that the secret was kind of out, and it was seen as less as sticking your hands into God's territory. But it created kind of a, a funny situation where new invented flowers began to flood the market. It's funny that it started with flowers. Yeah, it started with flowers, right. mostly with gardening. They're so, pretty. they're so pretty, and you you know you uh, rich people wanted roses that would maybe bloom twice a year, that were even bigger. I was going to say roses that were colors. black. Yeah, roses that were black, roses that were that were orange to fit with their Victorian Gothic themes. Uh, that's true. <laughs> I get it now, Claire. <laughs> so there were also these these concerns, though, that as all these gardeners kept crossbreeding plants, that uh, important naturally occurring qualities were getting lost in the rush to create bigger, bolder, hardier flowers. And in the mid-20th century, horticulturalists realized that in their haste to cultivate ever more gorgeous roses, they'd bred all the fragrance out of the flowers. Roses didn't smell like anything anymore. Wow. <laughs> and people were like, oh, man, wait, we got to go. What, what did roses originally smell like? So there's actually a group of people that would walk around um graveyards looking for old rose bushes that they could take samples from to try and get is back to the England? original original rose. This is in England and, and in America because there is so much crossbreeding and playing with flowers that they realized we've bred all the scent out of these roses. They created monsters. Yes, monsters, scentless roses. I bet the bees were confused. <laughs> it actually doesn't sound appealing to have no, scentless roses. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. So today, crossbreeding takes place at a more rapid pace than ever due to the fact that horticulturists can now tinker at the molecular level with their plants and flowers. And quite often, a new variety of flower won't last more than a year or two before it's superseded by something else. It's funny that eventually, good genetic modifications in flowers might be just trying to turn them back into what they originally were. <laughs> but that's something we're looking, for, looking at now. And I also wanted to mention one other thing that had to do with genetics that came out. And this is shortly after Jurassic Park, the movie, six years after Jurassic Park, the book. I remember watching Jurassic Park as a kid and then reading Time magazine about Dolly the sheep, mm-hmm. <laughs> who is was the first ever cloned mammal from a body cell. So they'd cloned mammals before by, by taking a, an embryo and splitting it into two different embryos and then raising them both Mm -hmm. but with dolly the sheep they took a cell from the body of a sheep and they were able to revert it kind of back to a stem cell form and then turn that into an embryo and that's why it was such a big deal and it coming six years after michael crichton writes this book about clones are gonna get us all was very poignant and it was such a big deal when dolly first came out oh it was huge yeah do you remember having to do all the debate of whether it was Ethical? Whether it's ethical or not. And and this occurred in Scotland. Dolly the sheep was from Scotland. But I remember having to do so many reports in middle school about Dolly the sheep <laughs> and like what exa- exactly happened. So that is my segment, Claire. It's super fascinating. And I love that it started with flowers. Yeah. And it led to a sheep. Yeah. And it led to sheep and maybe one day dinosaurs. Maybe one day dinosaurs. Actually, it's, it's been proven that, that what they do in Jurassic Park is impossible. That you could never get dinosaur DNA from a uh, mosquito trapped in amber. There's just no <laughs> genetic information in there. It's not preserved in amber. <laughs> like you Good can, to know. You can find mosquitoes trapped in amber, but from the, from, you know, the dinosaur the prehistoric days. prehistoric era. But... but you can't get DNA from them. All right. Well, now I know. Fear not. <laughs> well, I'm going to talk about um, Michael Crichton, and I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, creating Jurassic Park, which you touched on a little bit, the book and the movie. 
I wish I had a great story about him being holed up in a cabin in Switzerland <laughs> and a volcano erupting that changed the world for a year and the temperature, and this led him to create this great story. Someone else wrote a book that way, I think, but I can't remember who. Yeah, you might have to listen to our last episode to find out about mm. that. So this story is not going to be as interesting or as cool. Yeah, Crichton was kind of a— uh, he was kind of a conveyor belt of books, wasn't he? He sure he was. would churn them out. Uh, well, and he was a really smart dude. At 13, he started writing stories for magazines. At 14, he sold a travel article to the New York Times. Oh, wow. He went to Harvard wanting to, wanting to become a writer, started off as an English major, but switched his major to anthropology after a professor criticized his writing and eventually decided he'd become a doctor. But becoming a doctor is expensive. So to pay for his tuition to Harvard Medical School, he wrote paperback, paperback thrillers under two pseudonyms. He got so good at them that he was able to write one in nine days. Oh, my God. And his 1968 medical thriller, A Case of Need, won an Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best Novel from the Mystery Writers of America. I just want to say that writing a, a thriller in nine days really is— Oh, it's a the, skill. The factory just getting that book While out in medical school. While in medical school. This is school. how you're, like, paying for your medical that's, school. That's pretty incredible. And he said that after a while, writing became more interesting to him than medicine. But he did finish his degree, and he did become a doctor. In 1969, in his final year of medical school, Crichton published his first book under his own name called The Andromeda Strain about scientists trying to save the world from a deadly microorganism brought to Earth by a military satellite. The movie rights were very quickly sold to Universal, and he went to go visit the studio and see what was going on with the movie. And there he met an up-and-coming director named Steven Spielberg, uh, who was beginning a TV contract with Universal. Now, Spielberg was asked to give the author a tour of the studio, and the two hit it off and remained friends until uh, Crichton's death in 2008. Crichton was so successful writing thrillers that he stopped practicing medicine to write full-time. I mean, he's written so many of them. I'm not even going to name them. You can look them up. Like you said, it's kind of a factory. Yeah. And in 1973, wrote and directed a film called Westworld. Which we did an episode we on. Did, I've seen it. We did an episode yeah. on it. And apparently Spielberg um, encouraged him to make the movie. And he later said that Spielberg led him to believe it would be much easier than, than it, it actually was. was. And he <laughs> did direct other movies, but eventually learned that he felt he was better if he just focused on writing the movies. Maybe directing is easy to Steven Spielberg, but I bet it's hard for other people. <laughs> for us mere mortals. Yeah, for us mere mortals. I mean, writing a thriller is hard for us mere mortals. This we can't true. do it. In, I can't do it in nine days. So now I want to talk about Crichton writing Jurassic Park. He first thought of the idea in the early 80s while in graduate school, and he actually originally wrote it as a screenplay where a grad student clones the perfect copy of a pterodactyl in a lab from fossil remains, and the project became too amazing to be kept secret. Now, he was never thrilled with his first iteration and said the big problem was that once he had the dinosaurs, he didn't know what to do with them. And he never felt it was satisfactory, so he gave it up. Also, he didn't believe scientifically at the time there was any way that dinosaurs could be cloned. But over the course of the next few years, there were significant advances made in science to the point where Crichton could actually see how maybe kind of 
dinosaurs could be cloned. And, like, also take into account he was going to medical school. Yeah. He knew a lot of the latest scientific advancements. That's why a lot of his books have so much science in them. Yeah, he's, you know, he worked in science for so long. So that And makes he understood sense. it, and he and then, was able yeah. to kind of simplify it for us lay people. Yeah. Also, as he got older, he felt that, in his mind, dinosaurs were an inherently juvenile fantasy, and if he was going to write this story, it better be soon. He ended up writing it in his 40s. And he was always wondering why he was fascinated by dinosaurs and why they felt that they were tied to childhood and was trying to address this in his book, as well as the um, the fear of genetic cloning and what could happen. Yeah. Also, why we love dinosaurs. <laughs> his solution to the problem that was in his first draft of what to do with the dinosaurs was to put them in a theme park. Kind of answers the question of, if we engineered dinosaurs, who the hell would actually pay for it? Who? Yeah, so who would go out and try and make a dinosaur? Well, not even try and make a dinosaur. They might try and do it, but why would you make more? It's not a cure for anything. Yeah. However, true. it is very entertaining. And he said Hammond, who you were talking about in your segment, who basically created the park, is uh, Crichton's dark side of Walt Disney. And he said that Spielberg had a much kinder look at Hammond than he did. Yes. Or a much kinder view, I should say. Hammond in the movie is much nicer than Hammond in the book. And I definitely see Hammond as evil Walt Disney in the book. <laughs> That's such so accurate. The book took him 10 years from start to finish, three years writing, and a lot of accumulating research in between. And I wanted to include this quote that I found where Crichton is talking about the science in the book, and I think it ties in really well with your segment. I was particularly interested in that, in working on Jurassic Park, that aspect of what are the negative parts? Because in talking with the people who were doing this kind of research, what I was hearing was that most, the most responsible of them were deciding not to proceed down certain lines of inquiry, which is really a new phase in science. Traditionally, in science, what the scientists themselves have said is, I might as well do it because if I don't, someone else will. It's going to happen inevitably. I think there's recognition now that it's in no sense inevitable, and it's quite conceivable that if I don't do this research, neither will anyone else. It's simply too dangerous. And that's um, from Beyond Jurassic Park interview on Wikifandom. Yeah, so that I, ties really well in, actually. Yeah, that he found this... Very scary that we could clone and that maybe people weren't going to go down this path, which they did eventually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also what I think is funny, he did think it would make a good movie, but he didn't believe that anyone in the late 80s would be interested enough in dinosaurs to spend money making it. Yeah. Oh, how wrong he was. Be he found the perfect man-child director. He did, <laughs> he but was it wasn't just him who wanted it. Crichton and Spielberg were working on a film based on Crichton's script, Cold Case, which later became the much-loved TV show, ER. And that's when Crichton told Spielberg about his idea for Jurassic Park. And Spielberg loved it. He had loved dinosaurs as a kid, but hadn't seen how to put them in a movie until he heard Crichton's idea. Now, just a real disclaimer, I'm not going to go into Spielberg in this episode. I feel like we've talked about him multiple times on the podcast. I know you did a great segment in our Stranger Things episode where you talk about what is Spielberg. Yeah. And then um, I think you and James talked about him in Ready Player One. Yes, we definitely did. To come back from that. Uh, so when the rights for Jurassic Park came about, before the book had even been finished, mind you, it became the project to get in L.A. James Cameron wanted it. Richard Donner wanted it. And Universal One 
but mostly because Crichton already had such a good relationship with Spielberg. And Spielberg was so excited about it, he started storyboarding the script before it was even finished, two years before uh, shooting. Now, it was a thing of how he was going to make all of these dinosaurs, because the park is populated by dinosaurs, and I would be so remiss if I didn't touch upon this in my segment, because this is a whole other thing about technology. Oh, he really made computer graphics and did things no one had ever done before with this movie. Yes. Now, Dennis Marin, who worked for Industrial Light and Magic, had just designed the liquid metal effect for Terminator 2. And he suggested to Spielberg using computer-generated imagery to animate the dinosaurs or CGI, which is what he had used in Terminator 2. And at the time, that's all CGI had been used for, to make liquid surfaces, not to make creatures. And Mirren suggested that they give animating the dinosaurs a try and made a short of a T-Rex running through a field. Now, apparently, after seeing this footage, Phil Tippett, who was considered to be the top model animator in Hollywood, he won an Oscar for Return of the Jedi, um, and he was going to be the dinosaur supervisor. He said, after seeing this footage of this animated T-Rex running through a field, I think I'm extinct. Oh, no more puppets. <laughs> um, he did stay on as a kind of a, an advisor. And apparently he made the animators take mime classes for six weeks to learn to walk like a dinosaur. <laughs> That's also funny because that exact line is actually in Jurassic Park, the I think I'm extinct, <laughs> when when Ellie Sattler, the paleobotanist, and Dr. Grant, the paleontologist, find out that there's clones of dinosaurs. They they say, oh, I, th- oh, I think we're out of a job. And Ian Malcolm says, don't you think that, or isn't the term extinct? So I wonder if that it might have come from, from that. This. Yeah. <laughs> so this film was the first time human actors had interacted with computer-generated images. Now, Industrial Light and Magic made the dinosaurs after Spielberg locked his print and was off shooting another great movie, Schindler's List, which also released in 1993. It was a great year for Spielberg. Oh wow! Yeah. And they learned that making mechanical dinosaurs could send reference points to computers and increase their ability to animate them, which was the precursor to the CGI ball suits you see Andy Serkis wearing. The mocap. Yeah, the mocap suits. Oh, wow. Spielberg insisted that this new technique be kept on the down low. He wanted watching the movie to be a magical, pure cinematic experience. He didn't want people going into the movie thinking about the technology, which is so crazy that they had this groundbreaking technology and they didn't talk about it. It's because they wanted people to show up and just be so, they wanted people to show up and think that maybe Spielberg had somehow cloned a dinosaur (laughs) when they see it. Right. Well, when you see it, maybe. Yeah, it looks pretty good to this day. Spielberg said that it was very scary developing the story because the stars of his film were the dinosaurs and they were being created using new technology, and if they didn't work, the movie wouldn't work. This is true. Um, And there was so much on the line. Universal was really banking on this being a hit. They had developed so much merch. Um, They had deals with McDonald's, other brands, and they were betting it was going to be much bigger than your regular summer blockbuster movie. Like People's jobs were on the line. And uh, it was a good thing that they did, but that it broke op- the opening weekend record set by Batman Returns. 
It made $914 million worldwide, surpassed E.T. as the highest-grossing film worldwide, and was only surpassed by Titanic in 1998. And I, I think I read it's been re-released in theaters and has pushed its theater money over a billion now. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. Also, another—I mean, some people say wonderful. I think it's wonderful. or uh, And some people think it's horrible thing about this movie is that when it came out, like I said earlier, nothing like this technology had ever been seen before. And Spielberg basically inspired a whole new generation of filmmakers. And they could watch this and realize that anything was possible. Apparently, George Lucas saw it and was inspired to look back at Star Wars and maybe make some more. Oh, and, and add those changes to him, too. Oh, that, too. <laughs> and a certain director named Peter Jackson saw these movies. Yeah. And was inspired to maybe revisit some fantasy that he'd always loved. That's Yeah, that's pretty cool. Thinking like that there's something you really want to do, a movie you really want to make, but thinking that the technology just isn't there for it and then seeing the, these dinosaurs and being like, oh, no, it is there. Yeah. We can do this. And critics lament it for better or for worse, but we have a lot of the blockbusters that we have now, almost all the blockbusters we have now because of this technology. Now, I think... Someone would have come to it. Yeah. No yeah. matter what. I I don't think it was the scary thing that maybe we shouldn't touch the CGI. Just like genetics. Maybe we shouldn't go down certain certain trails. There are some <laughs> film critics that wish we hadn't. Yeah. Let me tell you that. We're going to get into opinions now. And yes. I guess our opinions on this versus Frankenstein. This is new territory for us. New scientific territory. Yes. Kyle, start us off. And I looked up reviews of Michael Crichton's book when it came out, Jurassic Park, and it was compared to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein by book mm -hmm. reviewers there. Yeah. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and also The Island of Dr. Moreau, which I is I was a, surprised Crichton never mentioned Frankenstein. Yeah, I was surprised too. Or or Moreau. He never mentions The Island of Dr. Moreau either, which was a H.G. Uh, Wells story about a crazy scientist who does genetic experiments on an island. <laughs> <laughs> I read the book when I was a kid. And I really liked the book when I was a kid, and I reread it now for the podcast. And it it didn't age particularly well, and I didn't enjoy it as much as I did when I was a child. But I also rewatched the first—I I watched all the Jurassic Park movies, every single one that's been made. Uh, and I rewatched the first one, and boy golly, does that hold up. And boy golly, does that dinner scene remind me of Frankenstein. <laughs> I read so many pieces of people rewatching Jurassic Park today or watching it for the first time today, being, you know, being one of those people that's like, oh, I haven't seen it. I'll watch it and write a, yeah. write a review for it. And it was all so positive. Yeah. Just, I didn't get a chance to rewatch the first movie. I have seen it and I did love it. It's so wonderful. The suspense is so great. And the dinosaurs look so good. They do. They look, they look very good. There's like one or two shots that are obviously computer generated. But yeah. you're willing to forgive them because everything else is just... They do a really good job with lighting. So you mm -hmm. only see the computer-generated dinosaurs in full daylight a couple times. A lot of times when you're seeing these dinosaurs, they're part puppet, part computer-generated, and it's in the dark and raining. Rainy. Yeah. And they they look so real. So one, one of the things I wanted to talk about was that all the Jurassic Park movies, every single one, uh, you know, from the first one to the all the way through the Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard ones, they all echo the book with scenes and set pieces from Michael Crichton's two books. He actually wrote a sequel called The Lost World. 
but few seem to really hold on to that Frankenstein feel that the first movie and the book have, which I thought was kind of interesting. I thought the Jurassic World had a bit of that. So the first, yeah, the first Bryce Dallas Howard, Chris Pratt one. Yes. They create a hybrid dinosaur. They do. Now, I was going to say, I think that's the closest one other than the original uh, Jurassic Park, but it's kind of clunky in its execution, in my opinion, and I, did, I didn't really enjoy that movie particularly no. that I mean, much. It, it's fine. It's an action movie. I was shocked that it made the amount of money that it made. Me too. Because I think too. it's good, but it's not something that I would go back to the theaters and see multiple times, which yeah. is I don't what even I think to- it's good. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a good time. You know, whatever. It's silly, and the action scenes are kind of fun. I wanted to, I wanted to bring this up, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention it now. When you were talking about when Crichton was trying to write this book, and he's thinking, I mean, who, who wants a dinosaur? Like, who would make a dinosaur? Oh, a theme park, an industrialist, zoos. Yeah, that, that kind of works. And to me, that's that follows. That's a line that makes sense and follows. But in Jurassic World, where they're trying to push this. Oh, the military wants raptors for Afghanistan. <laughs> it just is so ridiculous. And I'm thinking like, yeah, Crichton didn't think, oh, the military is going to want to use dinosaurs in combat, freaking raptors with freaking laser beams on their foreheads. Let me, let me say, though, if an army did have raptors with laser beams, <laughs> it would be so scary. They would they would figure out how to open the doors into the command tent and turn on their masters and, and take over. That's what would happen. I do believe is that this theme park would feel like it had to make bigger and badder attractions. Yeah, I to keep see that. up attendance. Having worked at a zoo uh, slash theme park, they didn't mess with the animals. <laughs> they got new ones that they would promote. But I worked for Six Flags in high school. They didn't and try. They always were trying to build a new roller coaster. Yeah. Not trying to build. They were building new roller yeah. coasters. But they always had to have some new fancy things that would attract the crowd. Yeah, that would bring up attendance. They never tried to crossbreed an octopus with a rhinoceros or anything like that, as though. As far as I know, no. Yeah. I mean, behind closed doors. I don't Maybe. Know. Well, that definitely would have brought up attendance. Oh, my goodness. At, at Six Flags <laughs> and San lawsuits. Francisco. <laughs> and lawsuits. Six Flags Vallejo. Excuse me. <laughs> so I, also, I wanted to mention uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which is the most recent Jurassic Park movie, came out, and how... It's different from the other Jurassic Park movies in that I think it lifts the least from the original books, Crichton's original books, but it does still echo Frankenstein at times. And actually, like the whole last half of the movie is very Frankenstein-esque, but not Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein, more of the cultural Frankenstein Mm. that comes from the movies that we know. And I'm not going to spoil it. I just want to talk a little bit about at the end of Jurassic World, they end up in this big, giant, gothic-style mansion, and there's a super scary hybrid dinosaur monster creeping around the mansion, murdering people. And there's also a scene where the dinosaurs are being presented in cages to, like, a bunch of rich businessmen Ooh, in suits. It's it, very gothic It's horror. very gothic horror, and, and, and to me, a little reminiscent of maybe Frankenstein, you know, performing for the crowd of... of rich, well-to-do people, a la young Frankenstein. <laughs> so I just thought that was interesting, that even though the the movies moved away from maybe this these kind of distant Frankenstein roots, they still kind of come the back to them a little so bit. The themes are so ingrained yeah. in yeah. the story. Which leads to me to my question. 
these stories of creating life and how badly it goes, do we need them? Do they stop us? Maybe they make you more thoughtful as you go about your terrible cloning experiments or or whatever. Yeah, do you think that biologists who are cloning animals watched Jurassic Park and thought the better of it? I don't know. That's a very good question. I would think not. I would think that their minds are so tranquilized to that one focus. No, I, I think that, you know, it, when that's your job and that's your field of study, of course, you just you just kind of want to keep pushing the limits. But science fiction functions this way a lot of times of asking that question of being like, you know, what should we do or, or, or presenting these potential future questions. I feel like sometimes sci-fi shows worst case scenario. Yeah, definitely. Do you think we need it? I love sci-fi, so yes, but maybe that's not true. Uh, is it extremely entertaining and makes you think a little bit more about your modern world and where you are? Right. Uh, yes, I think it definitely does. Because, I mean, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, and there's Jurassic Park, and there's also other, you know, creation stories that end very horribly. We're still cloning. We still mess with nature. That's not going to stop. No, and I don't know that it For better or for will. worse, yeah. I think they're— in some ways, it's wonderful. Huge populations of people can be fed. Yeah, it's true because of genetics. Yeah. And it's something that Crichton feared and that people still are a little skeptical of today. I think Mary Shelley's generation and creating life and playing God would be very scared of what we're doing right now. Yes, that's true. But they also wouldn't understand it as well as we do. They would be scared. They'd be terrified. <laughs> Cloning a sheep? Yeah, it's a little. I mean, they, we don't clone sheep for fun now. You know, it's too expensive. And right, uh, who would pay for it? There's no. Yeah, who would pay for it? They they did it once. And they're like, ah, we done it. <laughs> but but other mammals have been cloned. They've cloned horses. I know they've cloned deer. But for what the purpose other than just research and finding out what happens and learning more about genetics? I think that that is the purpose. They're not cloning horses to create a horse farm. I, I can't remember the actress, but I remember one older, like, eccentric actress. Had Gwyneth Paltrow. Her, no. Had her dog cloned. Whoa. And that's kind of a scary thing. I think that's crossing a line. But maybe that's something we'll see in the next 50 years. Who knows? Well, it was a thing where that the personality of this new cloned dog was so different from the old dog. So oh, it was talking really about how much can you clone an yeah. animal or a What are the a changes? Bean. Yes. Yeah. For our first pairing of topics, I guess I wanted to ask your opinion on, do you recommend these topics? How did you enjoy them together? Did you get more out of them? Tell me, Kyle. I enjoyed them both in very different ways. Michael Crichton's book dragged at times, but Jurassic Park the movie, of course, I love and is just such a fun, fun ride. And it's not just a fun action movie. There is a little bit of thought put into it, which I feel like the others maybe suffer from. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I also enjoyed, but in a in a different way, in a way where I felt like I was I was reading art and I was learning something about where, you know, this cultural idea of, of a Frankenstein monster and messing with things that maybe you shouldn't mess with comes from. And I, I thought that was really fascinating. And her writing is poetic. You, you, you heard some of the quotes I read. They're, they're beautiful. What about you, Claire? 
Oh, I I really enjoyed it. And it was interesting to read Jurassic Park right after reading Frankenstein and to see all of the parallel points being made yeah. and that we actually are still grappling with the same things over 100 years later, 200, almost 200 years later. Yeah, over 200 years later. But that, we're, that we continue to grapple with these ideas, and I don't know if we'll ever stop grappling with them. And that's why I was asking, is this useful? Because we're still asking these questions, and we still can't seem to come to an answer. I think not all questions need to have answers, but there are questions that you still need to think about, even if there isn't a conclusion. Oh, definitely. I, I completely agree. But it's just fascinating that with as far as technology is progressed, we're still worried about creating monsters. And maybe as technology has progressed, we're even more worried about creating monsters. Oh, we should be more worried about creating monsters. <laughs> um, but I did love seeing them together in that context. Um, and I, I loved the book. I loved it so much. It was. I'm so happy I finally read it. Frankenstein, you mean? Yeah, not yeah. Jurassic Park. Not Jurassic Park. Park, I dragged. Yeah. Definitely dragged. The movie, the first Jurassic Park movie is wonderful. And I also love that it's this movie that created a whole new type of movie yeah, that you could definitely. make a fantasy movie or a sci-fi movie in a completely different way because of this technology which Jurassic Park started. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com, and we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at DSRA Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at Klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. I can be found at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find our producer James at James Foey Jr. That's James Foey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about Jurassic Park, Frankenstein, and genetics. genetics on our Facebook page and Twitter, where we're going to post some of the articles we used in our show. And I just want to give a shout out to Kevin Hartnett of the Boston Globe, who wrote a great article where I got most of my horticulture uh, rose Ooh. crossbreeding information from. It's very good. Our producer, who would definitely be eaten by a velociraptor for getting too close, is James Foley. Our logo is done by the definitely not a clone, stop asking, stop checking, Patty Highland. And our theme was composed by the other evil Walt Disney, Pete Rowan. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.